This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. If you have a picture in your head of New York City in the 1930s and 1940s, it's probably in black and white. And if that picture shows a crime scene, a fire in a tenement, or a crowded beach at Coney Island, it was probably shot by a photographer who took the name of Ouija. In the middle of the 20th century, Ouija took memorable pictures of New York City's street life that went on to appear in tabloid newspapers and seminars on the history of photography. His life and work tell us a lot about New York City, it's journalism and photography. I'm Rob Snyder, Manhattan Borough historian and professor of American studies and journalism at Rutgers University, Newark. Today I'm talking with Christopher Bananos, author of Flash, The Making of Ouija the Famous, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award. Christopher is the city editor of New York Magazine, and he's also the author of Instant, The Story of Polaroid. We're here thanks to the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Books Network. Welcome, Chris. Hi there. <laughs> Flash opens with your observation that the photographer we know as Ouija was a man with three names. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, Ouija started his life in Eastern Europe under the name Asher Felig. Uh, he was a Galician Jew who came here at the age of 10. And when he came over, he went from being Asher to being Arthur. Um, you know, the, the saying is always that the name changed to Ellis Island, although he did it himself the way people really did instead of the way everybody says they did. Um, and, you know, Arthur Felling was a Lower East Side street kid of, of a type that is very familiar from movies and books and pop culture in New York City. Um, and he was, you know, he had a sort of rough and tumble upbringing. His family was extremely poor. He was a hungry kid. And he was not really cut out for that world, I don't think. You know, he was sort of a shy kid. He was a little bit bookish. Um, but he made his way. What he had was hustle. <laughs> and we all know that that will get you far, both in that world and in other worlds. Yes. Um, and along the way, as he got into his photography career, he started going by this one name, Ouija. And Ouija gradually became a character that he could sort of step into, you know, he, he could occupy the role. Um, and Ouija was a lot mouthier and a lot faster talking and able to sort of, you know, uh, make his way uh, both in high society and low, better in low. <laughs> um, 
and, you know, show up at movie premieres and opening night of the Metropolitan Opera to take pictures there, but also to cover the grimmest crime scene on a, on a block of the Lower East Side or, you know, anywhere really in the city. Um, and he spent the last part of his life sort of occupying those dual roles. Arthur Felig, who, you know, was one kind of guy, and Ouija, who was um, somewhat different. You write early on in the book that Ouija very early grasped that the distinction between high culture and low culture was getting blurry. How did he come by that knowledge? Um, it's a good question, and I'm not quite sure how he did. I think the, the, the likeliest thing is that, for starters, he was a person who consumed pop culture. He went to the movies a lot, and this is in the 20s when the silence were, you know, were still the way people saw movies. In fact, he, as, a, as a young person, he worked as a, an accompanist in a silent movie theater. He played the violin badly. <laughs> um, and, you know, he read Horatio Alger novels and things like that. Uh, he, you know, he, he was a New York kid. And I think New York kids understand that you can occupy both those worlds at once because we're practically next door to each other. You know, millionaires live next to um, crummy tenements. <laughs> um, and you know, that that distinction was starting to break down when he was young, and uh, that change has only accelerated since then. What did the rise of tabloid newspapers in the 1920s mean to him? Um, I think it meant everything to him. You know, if you look at the pop iconography, the movies he was consuming in the 20s and 30s and the novels, there's a huge number of books and uh, stories about uh, crusading newspapermen. You know, they're covering the mob or they're covering uh, gangs or, or um, you know, to a lesser extent, corruption in high places. Uh, and they're, they're sort of swinging characters. You know this from film noir. You know, every film noir has a sort of wisecracking reporter. There are whole movies about the newspaper world, The Front Page or His Girl Friday or, you know, what, I mean, you could name 20 of them off the top of your head. Um, Deadline USA comes to mind. <laughs> anyway, it was, a, it was a sort of a cool world in in uh, in its moment, you know, it was fairly new. The first tabloid there there are precursors, but the first real American tabloid was the New York Daily News, which was founded in 1919 and got going, roaring along in the 20s, covering one scandal after another. You know, there were there were a number of uh, dramatic either murders or scandals in the 20s and early 30s, and each one was just this injection of circulation and energy into the Daily News and its competitors. The Daily News started in 1919. Uh, three years later, it already had a competitor, the Daily Mirror. A couple of years after that, there was a paper called The Evening Graphic, which was unbelievably um, uh, trashy. <laughs> and sort of, it, the, the Daily News was, you know, lower middle brow, the mirror was a little below that, and the daily, uh, the the evening graphic was just like uh, it was practically National Enquirer level, except it covered New York City uh, scandal in particular. <laughs> Tell me more about how he learned his craft. Well, he learned his craft as um, first by watching. In the in the beginning of his career, he was not a photographer; he was a darkroom guy. He um, he worked at a big photo agency called Acme News Pictures after a couple of stints elsewhere, including the darkrooms of the New York Times, briefly. Um, and at Acme, he, he became the best printer in their darkroom. 
And, you know, he saw his darkroom sometimes produced a thousand prints a day. It was a, it was an assembly line um, in an office building on 8th Avenue. It's still there, as a matter of fact, right across from the garden. Um, and they they, you know, it was it was rewarded for speed and for having good pictures. So, you know, he, he got into the sort of swing and snap of the news business, which, uh, you know, surely appealed to him in the same way that the sort of sexiness of the news business did from the movies. Um, and, I mean, I can tell you, as somebody who works in the press, there's a sort of fun aspect to being on a crash deadline. You know, it's tiring and infuriating and exhausting or whatever, but it's also kind of, you feel like, okay, you're making news, you know? And you, you his darkroom would run super fast. He told all these stories in his autobiography about... Times he had, for example, uh, developed a picture on the... You have a wide range of Ouija photographs to choose from, and I was struck by the photo on page 31. First known picture of Ouija at work, photographing a contestant in the Miss Colored America pageant in the summer of 1931. Maybe describe that picture a little bit and what it tells us about Ouija as a photographer when he was out working. Crazy picture, yeah. Um, he's he's taken a picture of an African American woman, young, who is um, she's got a sash saying Miss America, and a crown. Um, and if you look at the picture, it's actually uh, put together. There was a picture taken of Ouija at work, and a picture of her. And if you look down the middle, there's a blur, and it's because they were they were blended in the dark room. And I, it's a little mysterious what went on here. But they're clearly taken at the same place at the same time because the carpet matches. And the curtain behind the two of them matches, right? Weird. So um, you think, well, it's an ordinary news assignment. Go to a pageant, shoot the winner, bring it back, you know. And then I started trying to figure out what the heck Miss Colored America was. <laughs> because, well, the first thought I had was Miss America pageant was all white in the 30s. So what's going on here? And there's a caption on the back that refers to her as Miss Colored America. Okay, let's find out about that. And I started digging into the African-American papers from that year, and it turns out there was this crazy scandal that cropped up like the next week or two weeks later or something that turns out the there were lots of uh, uh, black beauty pageants back then, sort of in a you know mirror image, if you will, of the, um, of the standard Miss America pageant which, by the way, was not held that year at all because of the Depression. Um, and it turned out that the guy who was overseeing this pageant, in, which was in Harlem, uh, held a bunch of the sort of qualifying rounds and then maybe the final one, and it turns out it was a giant scam, and he, like, escaped with all the um, entrance fees. <laughs> I think he ended up in jail, if I'm not mistaken. It's a, it just, it, I went down the strangest rabbit hole researching this picture. <laughs> There's an amazing expression on Ouija's face in this photograph that comes up again and again. It's somewhere in between a grin and a leer, I think. He was a leering guy. You can say a lot of good things about Ouija, about his talent, about his sort of egalitarianism. You know, he was, he was in his photographs, kind to down and out people most of the time and tougher on people who had it good. Um, but one thing you cannot say is that he was uh, a great, to women, he was a he was a horn dog <laughs> and um, a lecher. What about African Americans in these years when he shoots them? Um, one striking thing is that I, I said you can say a lot of good things about him, and one thing is that he he is he he is a little unusual for his time among white photographers in that you know the, even people who were socially conscious 
who were trying to sort of do well at that time. Often, white photographers who went to Harlem or went into a black neighborhood in Brooklyn, they, they, there's a whiff of sort of anthropology as they shoot it that you know can be a little condescending. Not always, but you, you see it once you're sort of attuned to it. And one of the better qualities of Ouija's pictures in this period is that he doesn't really do that. He shoots people as people. And his pictures of um, uh, white ethnics on the Lower East Side, you know, Italian families or Jewish families or whatever, are not radically different from his pictures of black families in Harlem. They kind of have the same texture. It's like people making their way in the city who have it a little tough, (laughs) Um, which speaks well of him, I think. He also did a couple of pictures uh, that are, are, you know, significantly about discrimination. Um, there's, a, there's a picture, one of my favorites, of a, a woman and her one-year-old son. They're standing in the doorway of their apartment on a, uh, I think it's 184th Street in Washington Heights. Um, it's 1943, and the, 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 uh, the, Dynamics of the neighborhood are that it, it was a white neighborhood that was becoming a black neighborhood. Essentially, you know, the border of Harlem was sort of sure. creeping north. Sure. The block below them had "quote unquote" gone black. That was the, <laughs> and it was this this woman and her husband and their children were the first black family on their block. And people from the neighborhood had smashed their windows with rocks and painted graffiti on their building. Um, and he just posed her in the broken window of her apartment door. It's a, you know, it's a front door with a big glass pane. And she's just looking at him. And it's, it, it is, um, you know, it's a little atypical for Ouija because it's, it's, it's much lower key. Um, and at the same time, it is an incredibly intense picture. It's really, really affecting. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think he wasn't a sort of social activist photo in the mold of, um, you know, uh, Dorothy Land or somebody. Um, but he also, you know, he'd been picked on as a kid. He knew what it was like to be a really struggling, striving person. Um, you know, he, he, I think, had sympathy and understanding for what he was looking at there. Um, and uh, it's one of his better qualities, for sure. What was his relationship with the police department like, especially when he was shooting crime scene photos? Very cozy. Um, the, the striking thing about that period is that it was, it was the relationship between cops and media, which is very restrained now, was much more porous. Uh, a reporter could hang around the squad room, which, let me tell you, does not happen today. <laughs> Um, he once said that, you know, when he was learning to drive, when he was learning to handle a stick shift, that a cop taught him during some downtime in the in the squad room. He showed him with a broomstick. He sat there in a chair practicing. Um, and, you know, he would, he told a story in his autobiography, Ouija, that he would, if he was photographing a couple of cops standing around a, you know, a fire or a crime scene, he would tell them to drop their cigarettes before he took his shot because they, there was a rule. They weren't supposed to smoke on the job. And he did this a lot, this kind of thing a lot. And, you know, it benefited him. They would tip him to stuff. They would tell him about stuff that was going on. There's a, there's a photo, there's a series of photos he did in 1940 of a raid at a brothel on the Upper East Side um, in the East 70s, a very, very chic brothel. <laughs> 
Um, and it's clear from the photos that there was only one reporter along, and it was him. And it's pretty clear that they tipped him to it, and he got it to himself. Uh, it's, um, it, you know, and I'm sure that was because he was hanging around with the Vice Squad guys, and they they quietly told him, get in the car, we're going to, you know, something like that. <laughs> um, and he got the exclusive. And because he was a freelancer, that meant he could, you know, eat for a month. Because <laughs> yeah. every paper in New York bought those pictures. I'm struck by a couple of his pictures of gangsters taking the perp walk, of LGBT people being busted. <laughs> and they're not guilty of anything, but they look awfully guilty in the photo sometimes. Right. Well, the old, the, 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 um, uh, the cross-dressers are the pictures you're thinking of, right? It's, it's men dressed as women. They, they, um, they were guilty of something in that it was illegal to do that at the time, you know. And uh, they, they uh, so there was, you know, a pretext on which to arrest them. Um, that said, yeah, there's, there's a whole sort of gamut of emotions in those papers, in those pictures. Um, the gangster arrest pictures, you know, again, he said, he said that they, he got to know some of them and they would, they would, um, I, I don't know how much he was puffing up his own story here, but he, he seemed to suggest that they, they, um, they got to know him at least on site and would, um, you know, would chat with him. They, they knew him as that guy around police headquarters. And so, you know, perhaps they would, um, you know, fail to cover their faces as they might for another photographer. What does Ouija's career tell us about the editorial personalities of the different newspapers around him in the 30s and 40s? Oh, it's fantastic, because I should explain exactly how he worked, because that sort of illuminates it. Um, because he was freelance, Ouija would shoot all night, just getting whatever he could get. And, you know, most of the papers were not rich enough to have a night guy. The Times had night photographers, and the Daily News, which is richer than them all, had night photographers, as did the Hearst Syndicate, which owned the Mirror and another paper. Uh, but there were still gaps in their coverage from time to time. Staff guy might miss something. It might be a weekend when they were less well-staffed. But more than that, you know, he was on all the time, and the other papers didn't have night people. So here's what he would do. He would uh, shoot all night, and then at around 6 a.m., he would show up at the New York Post, which at the time was on West Street. And they had a sort of informal arrangement where he had a, a first-look agreement with them. Nothing on paper or anything, but this was kind of how it worked. Basically, they got a first look, and he had a key to the darkroom. So he would come in with the last negatives he'd shot that night, process them at the post, show them to the photo editor. Photo editor would have first crack at them. And as I said, he got five bucks a picture. So he would show them, and then he would go up a few blocks because uh, it was not too far from the New York World Telegram, and he would show up at the World Telegram photo desk. They'd get a look. They might buy something. Then across town to the New York Sun. And they all had slightly different vibes. World Telegram was sort of upper middle brow. The Post was very different from the current Post. It was a liberal paper. It was, it was the paper of, like, of um, uh, uh, intellectual co college professors <laughs> used to read the New York Post. That was, it was the lefty liberal uh, broadsheet, too. It wasn't a tabloid yet. Um, then he would go over to the New York Sun, which was a stuffy Republican paper that had a great past and was sort of coming apart slowly in that era. Um, then it would be uptown to the New York Herald Tribune, which was the upper class Republican paper, and to the Times. Now, the Times wouldn't buy dead bodies, but they might buy a picture of a fire or a different kind of crime scene, you know. Um, the uh, the, the uh, wire services, Acme, where he had worked for many years, and the Associated Press, 
and the Hearst uh, syndicate might buy something. Um, the Journal American, which was a very trashy broadsheet owned by Hearst, would often sort of pick up something, and the Daily Mirror might too, and because they were essentially the morning and afternoon papers owned by the same company, they might share, and he'd get paid twice. <laughs> um, Sometimes he would photograph a couple of versions of the scene to fit the different papers' needs. For example, um, if there was a murder on the street, uh, he might photograph the body and sell that to the tabloids, and a soulful picture of the cop looking over the scene or the family looking mournful, and sell that to the Herald Tribune because they didn't want a corpse. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Did he ever stage photographs? Yes. Um, there were a lot of people who accused him of staging photographs, and my feeling is that he did it less often than people said. More often, it wasn't exactly staged. It was more a question of uh, uh, giving it a little help. You know, like there would be a body on the street, let's say. And you take a picture of it, yes, and sometimes it's a great picture, but often an editor would want something a little more action in the picture so he would ask somebody to stand over and look at it or peer at it or point at it and um you know in some of those pictures he's the one standing over it and pointing at it because he would put his camera on a tripod and and fire it with a cable uh fire the shutter with a cable um other times it's somebody else and then there are questions about, you know, sometimes there's a cop looking at something in a picture and you get the sense, eh, maybe he asked him to stand there, right? That happened, that, that's not staging a picture, though. That's just, you know, sort of composing a scene a little bit, right? There are pictures, a few, including his most famous picture of all, which uh, are flagrant setups. What's that one, do you think? The picture everybody remembers is it's popularly known as the critic and it's the one i mentioned earlier that he he shot on opening night of the metropolitan opera november 22nd 1943 um it's outside where the cars are pulling up to drop off opera goers and it shows two women exiting their limousine and a third woman standing next to them the two women um are society ladies who uh uh, tabloid readers of the time would have recognized, you know, um, the one on the left in particular, her name is irresistible. It's Mrs. George Washington Cavanaugh. Um, and she is wearing white fur that's about a foot thick and falls all the way to her ankles. She's got diamonds around her neck and in her ears, and she's wearing an actual tiara. And she's old and powdered, so her face is nearly pure white. Um, she looks like a, a a Thomas Nast cartoon of a rich old lady. She's she's beyond caricature, you know? She's wearing orchids that are dripping off her lapels. Um, and all this is during the war when rationing is in effect, right? Her friend next to her is another society lady. Uh, her name is Lady Dishies. Uh, she had married a... She was American, but she married a baron. She was a Drexel, you know, from Philadelphia, the, the 
Drexel family, the Drexel University is what they endowed. Um, and, uh, you know, she was perhaps slightly less famous, but also pretty rich. <laughs> uh, and the third woman is homeless or thereabouts. And she is, um, she looks kind of messed up. Her coat is a little ragged and she's grimy, you know. And she's looking at these two women with something, it's, this, it's a hard to describe the expression she has, but it's, it's uh, is it contempt? Is it disgust? Is it just bafflement? I don't know. <laughs> but it's, it's a wonderful, funny picture um, because the two old ladies are oblivious and the third woman is, you know, sort of commenting on them. So that's how it all plays. Um, it was, um, it ran in Life magazine and then sort of gained a life of its own, ended up in the Museum of Modern Art. And, you know, very often when people cite one Ouija photo, that's the one. A few years ago, Time magazine chose the 100 great photos of the century, and it was in, on the list. Anyway, the backstory was revealed 40 years later, when Ouija's assistant came clean. And what he said was, the woman on the side the, who's you know, commenting on the two society ladies was a friend of Ouija's. He had brought her there after getting her drunk all afternoon and propped her up at the curb. She could barely stand. And his assistant was just out of frame, having just given her a little push because she was reeling they'd, from the bottle of wine they'd poured into her. <laughs> did you ever talk to people who were photographed by Ouija? And what did they say about the experience? Um, I talked to a few, not many. Mo mostly it's descendants of, so there's like family mm -hmm. lore, you know. Um, I don't think, did I talk to anybody who actually appears in one of the photographs? I tried to find the kid from the Washington Heights picture, and he died There's a, a few guy years on Prince Street. There's a little kid leaning out a window. Oh, of course, yeah. right. Yes, yeah. I was thinking of people who show up in the portraits. But yes, um, there, there's a picture he made in 1939 of a tenement at uh, 10 Prince Street. It's 10 and 12, two tenements together. Um, a guy had just been murdered in the ground floor candy store and his legs are hanging out the front door, <laughs> you know. Um, he was a bookie and the, uh, things had gone wrong for him. And what you see in the picture, Ouija step back, he's all the way across the street, about 100 feet back. And um, what you see is all four floors of the tenement, every window has three or four little heads peering out. He called it balcony seats at a murder. Um, and my, my, I... I Super proud of this uh, as a reporter, I must say, because I managed to find a kid who was in the window that day. He was seven then, and when I talked to him, he was 84 years old, living in New Jersey. <laughs> How did you find him? Oh, my gosh. Well, I got lucky. The picture is from November 1939. And the timing was just right, because in 1940, there's a census. And I uh, looked up the third floor residence of that tenement. And I said, is there anybody who in 1939 was old enough to remember it and young enough to still be alive in whenever I was doing this, 2016 or something? So that's, that's a fairly small window. You needed somebody who was between five years old and 12 or 13. Anybody older is probably gone, uh, maybe 15, right? And I found one seven-year-old and 
I think there were three kids who, who sort of fell into the range. Maybe it was five. I don't know. And a couple of them had very common names, but this guy did not. <laughs> uh, his name was Vito Cosenza. And it was uncommon enough that when you Google him, uh, there's, I think, four in the United States, something like that. So I called them. And it turns out one of them was in the New York area. And so I called him first. And he seemed a little surprised when I asked him, did you live at 12 Prince Street and are you in a photograph by Ouija? He said, yes, I am. Yes, I was. And I about dropped the phone. Um, and the most interesting thing to me was that I asked him about that day and he doesn't remember the murder. What he remembers is being in Life magazine the next week. <laughs> One of the nice points you make in the book is that so often Ouija's photographs capture the New York Observer observed. What do those photos tell us about city life and the media? Yeah, you're right in that a signature of Ouija's work is that in order to make his pictures stand out and frankly to sell better, um, was that he really liked uh, photographing not the event itself so much as the people reacting to the event. You know, anybody could take a picture of the burning building, and I can tell you, he once said, that they all look alike. <laughs> and in fact, I can tell you, having looked at a lot of his tenement fire photos, they do, in fact, all look alike. But the reaction shots of people on the street looking at their burning apartments are not all alike, not at all. Um, and, you know, I mean, perhaps this is a, you know, confirmation bias at work, but I feel like New York, New York street faces are highly expressive to begin with. It's a, it is, you know, the, the rich tapestry of New York, <laughs> you know, you see everything. And, uh, also, you know, he was photographing in a time when I think people were a little, um, more unselfconscious about, you know, appearing in public. Um, I don't think people were quite as scared of the camera as they might be today. And, you know, there are people who have seen a lot, especially in the tenements. You know, there are people who have lived through a lot. Some of them had come from terrible things in Europe, and others had come from, you know, uh, just difficult backgrounds of other kinds. Um, and, you know, they were, they were people who did not restrain themselves. And uh, it comes through in the pictures. He knew how to make pictures that evoked that. So much of what we've talked about is Ouija's spot news, his work that he did for tabloid newspapers. But in later parts of his life, he went to Hollywood, he worked in movies. What was the result of that work? Well, he, after he published his first book in 1945, Naked City, it's called, and you, you know it and I do as, you know, for the tagline that, that the movie had, uh, there are eight million stories in the Naked City, this has been one of them. <laughs> And, uh, you know, he got, so he, he got the bug to be in the movies. And yes, he, he, well, the first thing he did was, was start shooting just sort of softer city life, slice of life stuff. And he did a whole book of that called Ouija's People. And it's really good. It's worth seeking out. Um, it's still, by most standards, it's pretty harsh. <laughs> by his standards, it's cuddly, <laughs> you know. Um, and after that, he decided he wanted to be in the movies. And I don't mean just taking pictures on sets or whatever, he had this idea that he was going to be an actor and a filmmaker. Now, I understand the filmmaking thing. A lot of photographers try to make movies as well. But as an actor, that, that seems nuts. You know, he'd had, a, he'd had a walk-on part in Naked City when they made a movie. And he moved to Hollywood and he decided he was, like, going to make it doing bit parts. And he, he's in a bunch of movies for, you know, 20 seconds apiece. He, he's in a boxing movie and he plays the ref. And he's in a, um, 
he was in a, a movie about a cabbie and he plays a cabbie, although his scene ended up on the cutting room floor. He's, um, he's in um, uh, the remake of Fritz Lang's M, the one from the 50s, and he's, he has two words. <laughs> um, and he, he did set photography work and he had come up with some trick lenses and he rented them to movie makers at an exorbitant rate, so that helped him make a living as well. Um, and the, the combination of all three of these things was a sort of kind of living for a few years, but he kind of fell off the radar. He, people wanted the one thing from him that he didn't want to do anymore, which was chasing murders in the middle of the night. Uh, and, you know, he couldn't quite, he could sort of eke out a living doing this stuff, but he really, he expected he was going to get a big payday every couple of months, you know, a, a movie moment or a big photo sale now that he was famous. And it didn't work out that way. So he did a few years in Hollywood and then he came back to New York and he started making pictures in this period that were, um, that fall into two classes. One is he, he did a lot of girly photography. <laughs> uh, the sort of lecherousness of his personality started to come out. Um, you know, there's a lot of pictures of Betty Page, people like that. Um, and secondarily, and this, this went to a lot of sort of, you know, third-tier magazines. Uh, secondarily, he started doing this series of trick photographs. He, as I said, he had made these, these specialty lenses that um, distorted pictures, and uh, turn them into, you know, he would shoot through kaleidoscopes or things that would warp and morph the image. And he started doing all sorts of things like that. Many of them are caricatures. You know, he would, he would take a famous person, picture of, let's say, um, uh, Khrushchev, right? <laughs> and he would take the, his bald head and blow it up as this giant light bulb head. So they were, they were caricatures, and they're kind of cool. Um, at the same time, the reaction, both among photo editors and people who knew him, was basically, what the hell is this? This isn't what we, this is nothing. You're just playing around in the darkroom. And he kept saying, no, this is my art. And in fact, some of them are abstractions. He tried to make abstract art out of these. You know, he would, he would photograph a model, a nude model or something, and he'd, he'd give her, you know, six breasts or whatever. Uh, and then he would try to sell it to a men's magazine, you know. And you know, was it art? People are still arguing over this. Photo collectors are still arguing over this because you could make the case that he's just goofing around and being a sort of kook. Or you could make the case that this is proto-Photoshop <laughs> and he's, you know, actually at the avant-garde of the manipulated photograph. Um, most people fall into group A. <laughs> <laughs> Any changes in your thinking about Ouija as you researched and wrote this book? Um, it's, it's hard to say whether my thinking changed about him. I, um, I came to believe that he was capable of multiple things that uh, you know, people didn't quite give him credit for. A lot of people think of him as a photographer of murders. I actually think that his slice of life stuff, especially shot in Greenwich Village in the late '40s, um, is really good. And people don't know that work, and it's 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 really quite fine. You know, there's a whole series of pictures he made that people don't know. For example, he he spent some time in 1950 around the Yiddish Rialto on on Lower Second Avenue, taking pictures backstage and at the cafes and and at rehearsals for a couple of productions of the Yiddish Theater. And, you know, that's not material you think of 
Ouija having photographed at all. They're great. They're really good. And, you know, he was in an idiom he knew. I have to assume that as a kid he went to those Yiddish theater productions. You know, he was a Lower East Side kid whose family spoke Yiddish. Um, and, you know, he, he could really do that stuff well. Um, I also have a sort of perverse affection for the distortion pictures that people don't necessarily love. I find them sort of cool. Some, uh, I was talking to a photo collector about this a couple of years ago, and he pointed out something. He said, if you look at one of them, it's nothing. If you put 10 of them in an array on a gallery wall or in your living room or something, they look great. <laughs> you get it all of a sudden. So they benefit from multiples like those, you know, Burnton Hill Becker photos or something. <laughs> I don't know. They, uh, they, um, they, they, you know, what you realize is that they're comic strips and they, <laughs> they kind of benefit from presentation that way. So I've, I, I, I am, let me put it this way. If the only work he had ever done was the distortion photos, we would not be talking about Ouija today. <laughs> he would have been a minor forgotten figure and deservedly so. But as a, as a minor body of work in addition to his greatest work, they're not bad. <laughs> You're a magazine editor. Do you ever imagine what it would be like to work with Ouija as an editor, depending Exhausting. on his photo? <laughs> he would wear you out. He was the thing is about Ouija is that as a personality, he was a little coarse. You know, he was a street guy, no question about it. And he he was he was pushy. He would nudge you to run his stuff. He would bother you over and over until you bought something, you know. At the same time, you could probably count on his, um, at least at least earlier in his career, on his hustle that he would he would get out and do the work. Um, probably anyway. <laughs> you know, we died in 1968. What do we learn about New York City by looking at his photographs? Well, one striking thing is that you know, one as he got out of the news game, one reason he got out of the news game was that he didn't want to work all night anymore. But also, when he came back to New York um, in the 50s, after his stint in Hollywood, you know, he, he, the, the city he was encountering was starting to change. It was starting to turn into modern New York. It wasn't, wasn't the crazy Richistan in which we live now. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the, the crummy old tenements were starting to give way to housing projects. And the streets that had not been full of traffic were suddenly full of traffic. You know, you, and the news business was starting to get professionalized. You know, you had reporters who'd gone to college. What the heck was that? <laughs> um, it was it was becoming less hospitable to his sort of um, the way he'd come up, which was to this sort of like uh, artisanal craft newspaper, if you like. You know, this idea that you could do a local small bore coverage. The Daily News in those days, before the war, the Daily News didn't cover much international news. They would cover like the queen, or I guess it was the king, <laughs> right, 1936. Uh, but they, they would, um, you know, and, and that kind of thing, like they would cover society news, and you'd get a little stuff from Europe, but fundamentally it was a paper of the neighborhoods of New York City. The war came and that started to change in a hurry. You know, suddenly the front page of the Daily News every day was what was going on in Germany or France uh, or in the Pacific. And, you know, after the war that didn't go away because then there were internet, you know, there were international affairs to cover the Cold War, essentially, you know. Um, and although there were still plenty of, you know, murder headlines and things in the papers, it didn't dominate the news culture the same way. Um, it started to be a modern city, and he was not a guy 
who was made for our city. At the same time, he was made for fast-moving news. And I always say that if he were alive now, he would not be doing newspaper work. He would not be a photographer. He would be one of those TMZ guys in a car chasing whatever the tabloid news of the day was um, and trying to get it on video that night to be pushed out on the web, you know, 10 minutes later. <laughs> Any final thoughts on him? Um, you know, I have so many questions for him. I, I don't know if I would have liked meeting him. As I said, he was a rough and tumble guy and he was coarse. At the same time, I have a feeling he was fun. Uh, at least if you were a guy. I don't know how much fun he would have been <laughs> if you were a woman around him. Um, but I, I, I will say that I spent three or four years in his head while writing about him, or trying to spend three or four years in his head while I was writing about him. And I didn't get tired of him. <laughs> I, I think that's a good thing. Christopher, thanks for being with us today for the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Books Network. Thanks so much. <laughs>